This is Radio Atlantic. I'm Isaac Dover. Right now, I'm at a hotel in Boston on my way to the New Hampshire State Democratic Convention, which is happening over the weekend. I spend a lot of time on the road covering this presidential campaign. Planes, trains, Ubers, many, many rental cars. Today, I took the Bolt bus. If you're not familiar, it's basically a Greyhound for 20-something New Yorkers. I've never ridden one for a campaign, and despite once being a 20-something New Yorker myself, I hadn't ridden one in years. Neither had Beto O'Rourke, but that's how he decided to go himself from New York, where he was for the CNN Climate Change Forum on Wednesday night, up to New Hampshire by way of Boston. Not a campaign bus with his name on it, just a Bolt bus with bad Wi-Fi. Waiting to get on, I asked him how long it had been since he'd been on a bus like this himself. It's been a while. Yeah, I, I used to live here in New York, and so I remember taking the bus to, to D.C. or to Boston, Chicago. I even took it to El Paso once, but that was in my 20s. I ride the bus. Beto is a name you surely know. He's the former congressman from Texas. Right now, he's a presidential candidate. In 2018, though, he ran for Senate, and in an effort to unseat Ted Cruz, he upended politics, becoming a celebrity and raising $38 million in a single quarter. His presidential campaign hasn't gone as well. The problem hasn't been that he didn't have the big breakout moment at the second debate which fans were hoping for, though he did not. The problem was that he still hadn't convinced nearly anyone that there was a clear reason he was running at all. O'Rourke, as a candidate, is always about listening. He wants to meet everyone and hear what they think more than give big campaign speeches. But voters want to hear from candidates what's driving them to run, and O'Rourke didn't seem to have that clear rationale energizing him. That changed on August 3rd. We're back with the breaking news. A mass shooting in El Paso, Texas, at the Cielo Vista Mall. We're hearing there are multiple fatalities. Police say one person is in custody. The Walmart in El Paso is just five miles from the border, making it a popular shopping destination for Mexicans. Federal and local authorities are investigating the attack there as an act of domestic terrorism and a possible hate crime. As news came in that his hometown was the site of a mass shooting, O'Rourke rushed back to El Paso, and the press corps followed. Is there anything in your mind that the president can do now to make this any better? Uh, what do you think? Um, you know the shit he's been saying? He's, he's been calling Mexican immigrants rapists and criminals. Um, I, I don't know, like, members of the press, what the f- Hold on a second. You know, I, 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 it's, it's these... Um, it's these questions that you know the answers to. I mean, connect the dots about what he's been doing in this country. Um, he's not tolerating racism. He is promoting racism. He's not tolerating violence. He's inciting racism and violence in this country. So, um, you know, I, I just, I, I don't know what kind of question that is. A few days ago, there was yet another mass shooting in Texas in the Midland, Odessa area. Altogether, the two August shootings left 29 people dead and 46 injured. Just in August just in Texas. They have put O'Rourke into a dark place, but also maybe helped give him that clear reason to be running. So that was all on my mind as we boarded the bus together in New York and started to make our way north. Let's see. Testing, testing. All right. right. Uh, We're on a bus. Why are we on a bus? We are traveling to Boston and getting to be on the road, which I, I love to do. I always prefer to travel 
uh, on the road and actually see the country through which we pass. Um, you know, I, I honestly prefer to drive right. over being driven. Uh, you seem to, to like having wheels under you. I do. <laughs> and honestly, it just makes a, a ton of sense from the savings. Um, and also, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm advocating for is that we find ways to reduce our, our energy consumption um, and uh, be a little bit more thoughtful and mindful of how we travel and uh, what we burn to get there. And, you know, this, this is one of the more efficient and effective ways to do that. Uh, I'd just rather be moving instead of waiting. And, and on this bus, we're, we're moving. And in addition, uh, you can make a phone call. Yeah. You can read. You can... Yeah, you uh, you are reading the new Bill McKibben book, uh, How the Human Game Has Maybe Played Itself Out. Yeah. Uh, that seems like the very on-brand of where your, your head is at the moment. Yeah. You know, someone put that book into my hands uh, the other night at an event and said, you really need to read this. And... You know, I, I probably pick up a few books that people give me a week, read uh, very little of any of them just because of time. Um, but here I was waiting for the bus to come. That Bill McKibben book was sticking out of the, the bag, and I just thought, well, um, rather than scroll through my Twitter feed again, why don't I read something that will nourish my mind and, and make me a little smarter? And it's really good, very well written, really interesting, and I'm just at the beginning of it, so I, looking I'm, forward to reading it. I am impressed that you can read on a bus. I get I get carsick uh, often. Uh, hopefully not on this trip. I, it, I think tracks back to an, an incident when I was about ten years old, a school trip on a bus that I got sick, and maybe the psychology is in there. But you, you're did you vomit? I, yeah, I can confirm that Projectile that happened. Or, or down into the bag it was a, it, there was a classmate of mine who did not fare well. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Which, as you can imagine, yeah. uh, for a group of fifth graders, was yeah. just, everybody was really calm and uh, understanding. Oh, sure. <laughs> did, did, did it trigger any other uh, vomiting from any of your other classmates? I've, I've seen that happen, this kind of chain reaction of nausea. Once somebody loses it, it uh, causes other people to do it as well. It, it did not, but I have. Uh, <laughs> it's been a while since I've had Doritos, uh, and maybe yeah. since oh, then. Yeah. <laughs> For me, it's Southern Comfort. <laughs> Going back to my time at, in New York, uh, Rob Choi and I, uh, for some reason, got into some Southern Comfort and just was a, a very messy, messy night involving Rob Choi. You know, and, and this is not something I've seen in any other city, but in New York, walking down the streets before Christmas, there are all these netting machines to put the, the Christmas trees in to constrain and constrict their size. And, and Rob Choi made it through one of those netting machines uh, on Southern Comfort. If I just smell Southern Comfort now, I am... Southern Comfort is, to me, what Doritos are to you. Well, neither of them are on the bus, so we no, should both be okay. Uh, I want to I take you back. <laughs> We're joking around, but it's been, it's been a rough month for you. Uh, you were uh, in Las Vegas for a presidential forum, a, a labor forum, uh, when the news of the shooting in El Paso broke, you made a statement right away, got on the plane, went home. Just walk me through what that was when you landed, wh when you're sort of trying to process what's going on here. Well, there was confusion at first. What, what had happened? Where had it happened? 
how serious was it? There, there, there was almost an inability to believe that what I was reading about on Twitter and what friends were texting me about could really be happening. Surely they're mistaken. Someone's blown this out of proportion. Um, it's, it's natural for us to, to panic and, and assume the worst. Um, but you know, this what you thought the body count was out of proportion, well, no, or there? there was no body count at first. There was just um, alert. There's a uh, active shooters plural at Sierra Vista Mall. Okay. That, that was the uh, the initial you know text that I got from a friend. Uh, then I got on Twitter to see if I could learn more, and I, I really didn't get much more detail. Then there was you know uh, people have been shot. Then there was uh, a, an unconfirmed report that there were bodies in the parking lot. And even at that point, I'll be honest with you, I, I couldn't believe it. Uh, just not, not in El Paso. Does not happen there. Has never happened there. Um, I have this um, extraordinary faith uh, and pride in our, our safety and our security, in large part because of who we are, which, as, as you've heard me say, just flies in the face of of the rhetoric and the conventional wisdom about um, communities of immigrants or border communities or, or El Paso itself. It's supposed to be dangerous and, um, and you know, um, a security problem to be contained when in fact it's one of the safest places in the United States. So, so none of it rang true to me. Uh, and, and also that's where I'm from and where Amy and I are raising our kids. And so I, I think part of me didn't want to believe it for that reason. But as... But it was true. It did happen. true. Right. And as, as details came in, I called the mayor. I called the chief of police. I called the sheriff. I called Veronica Escobar, a member of Congress, um, trying to learn details. And the more I learned, the worse it looked. And we just, you know, actually, even before we got many of those details, made a decision, we got to go back to El Paso. Uh, and this is while it was still an active shooter situation. Got on the phone with Jen, our campaign manager, said, hey, I hope we're all on the same page. Does not make sense for us to be in Las Vegas or to continue our trip in Nevada. I just want to be home right now and I want to be with my family and I want to be with El Paso. And then on the flight, you know, we're still trying to gather information. This young man uh, approaches me and introduces himself and says, I guess you're headed back to El Paso as well. And says that he just found out that his mom has been shot and doesn't know her status um, or her prospects. Um, just got the bare details, left work. His boss booked him a flight uh, and he's headed home to, to find out how she is and asks if I would uh, join him when we get to El Paso. And so that that was um, a way for me to, to just in very personal terms understand what was happening. Just to see this guy, Chris, is his name, just his pain, his uncertainty, um, his fear, but also extraordinary strength. I, I don't know that I would have been able to keep it together the way he was keeping it together. And I think at that point he may have known that his mother had been shot in the chest, um, but but not much else beyond and, that. And how does that story end? What what happened with his mother? So we land, we go to University Medical Center, we walk into his mother's intensive care unit. She is awake. We learn that she's been shot in the chest. Both of her lungs have been perforated. They're they're draining fluid. You can see tubes kind of snaking 
out from under the sheets that are connected to her chest, taking all this fluid out. She's got a mask on her face to, to breathe, and she sees Chris, her son, and she just like breaks out in, in the biggest smile possible. Um, her daughters are, are around her. There's some other family members. And then Chris says, hey, I want to introduce you to Beto. And I, I got to tell you, I felt somewhat apprehensive. This is a very personal, um, very difficult, got to just be literally physically painful moment for her to, to try to um, connect with people as she's fighting for her life. And she graciously smiled, hugged me, welcomed me answered my questions, told me how she was feeling. Um, Seemed like she knew who she, you were. Yeah, yeah. She, she, and that's why, in part, why Chris and by he said, oh my God, my mom would love it if you came. I said, are you sure? I don't, I don't know that she's going to love anything right now. And he said, no, I think it'll make her feel better to know that you're there and that you know that she's there. Um, and then, you know, they tell me that um, Chris's mother's mom, Chris's grandmother, was also shot. Um, shot in in the stomach um, shot in the stomach though um, tried to help others who who were wounded in the aftermath of that shooting until she finally because of her wounds just couldn't do that anymore and, and the next morning I got to go visit her um, who she was every bit as strong as her daughter Rosemary um, which helped me understand where Rosemary got the strength to begin with and grandmother Rose uh, Rosa, she kind of cheered me up. You know, I came in, you know, probably looking pretty grave and serious. How are you doing? And, you know, what can we do to help? And she was smiling and laughing. And she said, you know what? You knocked on my door when you were running for Congress in 2012. And uh, I told you that, you know, sorry, I'm, I'm voting for Sylvester Reyes, um, but that I appreciate that you showed up. And this is just a, this is the incumbent congressman democrat who you beat in the primary yeah. and it was uh, it was a dog fight then so yeah, yeah. absolutely <laughs> and so she said and so we're laughing about that and she kind of cracks me up and she said but ever since then and since you won and, and the very fact that you came to my house you know i've been for you ever, ever since and so you know here she was kind of bucking me up and and uh making me laugh and, and encouraging me in, in what i'm doing right now but you know again so gracious, so kind, so warm. Her sister also shot um, at, at that point, still receiving urgent medical care, um, would succumb to her wounds, would not make it. Um, so, so that family, three people wounded, one dies, two will live with those wounds forever. Um, the grandmother in, in her early 80s um, just brought home to me um, just how painful and traumatic that shooting was and yet how strong and resilient people are and especially those people that I met in El Paso and I could tell you a story after story I just got off the phone with Jessica who was shot in both legs her husband Memo was shot in uh, the abdomen and in different parts of his body and he's still in, in intensive care right now still coming through um, but they're coming through uh, and, and incredibly strong. Did it get dark for you? It seemed like there was uh, clearly frustration coming out of you, some anger, a lack of uh, 
seemed like to you recognition of what had happened. Yeah. There was that, that moment where, like, uh, you said members of the media, what the fuck, right, yeah. where that came out. But that came because that was after a day and a half of trying to process what was going on and uh, reporters chasing you around because you are running for president and right. you got separated from your wife and you right. were trying to find your car yeah. and then you got this question that was uh, like a, a very weird question when you really think about it like what could Donald Trump do to make this better right. uh, and it should be that was from a uh, a foreign reporter who asked it uh, but how how dark did it get? Yeah, I, I I felt a um, I, I don't know how to put it. Um, you, th- this moment where you, you, you are either going to give up and and accept that this is what is happening. It's just so dark, so fucked up, so inexplicable. Um, And, 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 and that can be consuming. And, and in, in the immediate aftermath of the shooting, when it hit home, this is even before I got to El Paso, when I realized what had, been, what had happened, I just, um, it overwhelmed me, you know, emotionally and, and physically. And it just, at, at a really deep fundamental level, made me wonder what I'm doing or what I'd ever been doing or what we are doing. Um, and, and this is probably not making sense, but I... But I um, how, how could this happen? How could I have allowed this to, to happen uh, as a part of this country, as someone who held public office as an El Pasoan? Um, and, and all of the, you know, performance, the, the ritual, and the, um, you know, I don't know, all the editing goes into speaking when you're running for office uh, just really evaporated or, or didn't seem as important or I didn't even really know that, that I cared uh, at that point and you know we just just been at this beautiful 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 vigil uh, right outside of Las Americas and um, and just heard Manuel Joaquin's father Joaquin who'd been killed at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas in Parkland, uh, Manuel, who just finished this beautiful mural. Who happened to be in town. He was going to be there anyhow and happened to be there and spoke at this vigil and moved all of us. In fact, there's a New York Times reporter in front of me who was just choking back tears and then finally just gave in and was just sobbing in front of me as she was listening to, to Manuel. And, you know, I, saw, I see all my, my, my friends, their family, my community. I, I'm overwhelmed with pride at the same time that I'm overwhelmed with, with grief. Um, and it was a funny moment where I saw um, three friends of mine. Um, I saw Cesar and, and Carlos Gallinar, and I, I saw Joel Guzman. And they, they were there as well, and there's like, hey, Beto. But then there were all these people around me and members of press, and I, I couldn't quite get to them. And it felt, I was like, I just want to be with them right now. I just, I, like, I'm fucking fucked up too. And they're fucked up, and, and we want to be together right now. And, but, you've got this campaign team and we're trying to get to the next vigil and um and we're, we're doing that and i'm in between these two parked cars and i get boxed in on either side by members of of the press um and uh and then i can't i don't see amy and i'm like i just 
And then I get asked the stupidest fucking question I've ever been asked. Uh, and I just, I just lost it. And I remember uh, Cynthia from my team trying to, to restrain me. Like she was like, oh shit, he's, he's losing it. And I was like, no, 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 hold on a second. Let, let me answer this, this question. You do hear on the audio, you, you, are, you can be heard saying, hold on a second. Yeah. So, and, yes, that checks in. <laughs> and, uh, and then finally we find Amy, we get to the van and we start driving to this vigil that we're going to on the east side and uh and it just feels like maybe this is over and and i think i said that to amy i was like you know i i I think i just really messed up there uh i i my my anger got the best of me um my emotions overcame me and I didn't say it this articulately. I think I just said, look, I fucked up. Uh, and and it, nobody spoke in the van. I didn't speak. I was pissed. I was pissed at myself. I was pissed at the world. I was pissed at that question. I was, I was pissed that we were even having this conversation. Like, how in, the, how in the world could we be asking ourselves these questions as civilized, intelligent human beings who um, report the news, make the news, um, you know, report on the policy, make the policy. What, why are we even asking, is Donald Trump racist? Did he have something to do with, could he, could he make it better? Um, and and, and I, I think I was mostly mad at myself. Why have I not been able to figure this out? And uh, why have I not been able to, to make these connections more clear? Uh, why, why have we not been able to change this? And uh, anyhow, <laughs> That was that was all that was all in my mind. Uh, was there a point? Where, was there a point where you thought of not getting back into the race? You took a pause from the the trail. I don't know that there was a uh, certainly not a conversation, nor a a conscious you know thinking through. Uh, well, if I don't do this, what will I do? I, I think there was just as I said. I think in in the immediate aftermath, I just you know what 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 am I doing? at all um i and i don't know again i don't know how to articulate this but just down to my bones or my essence made me question myself and and so to some degree yes i was just you know i i mean and i just remember i do remember having the conversation about going to the iowa state fair and i was like fuck no uh uh-uh no i i can't pretend I, i would be pretending and and to some degree there's you're performing when you're running for office, right? You're, you're never fully, wholly, truly yourself, warts and all. You, you are on a stage and you're projecting and you are acting in a way that you want people to read and, and inform their picture of you. No, no one can help that. And to quote uh, Shakespeare or Getty Lee uh, from Rush, I mean, we're, we're all actors on that stage uh, and, and no one more so than perhaps somebody running for president. But the, I, I couldn't. I couldn't go do that, and uh, and so I, that I knew. I, I knew that should we, or when we continue this campaign, whatever point that is, I I just can't go back to that. I I, I have to, uh, as much as I can, be as honest a, as I can. I have to go do the things that that I think are important, and in in that same week of El Paso, we learned about the, the raids in, in Mississippi, and the two seemed very connected to me in a, in a very obvious 
way this this manner of terrorizing people and trying to terrify the country about immigrants and Hispanics and and um, people who are really the most vulnerable and the most defenseless in America. And I said, I want to be there. I, I want to go there. Uh, and I want to go anywhere where people are being kept down or made to be afraid. Okay, we're going to step off the bus briefly. We'll have more with Beto O'Rourke in a moment. tell your kids about what was going on you there's a story you tell about uh i heard you say it last week in charlottesville and being at the march for our lives and with your son and you get to the end of it and there's somebody right. there, there are people with assault rifles and you're trying to explain that juxtaposition but right. when you're you've got three kids uh they're growing up in el paso right. and they're seeing what's going on around them with the shooting and the aftermath of it what do you say to them Coming off of that March for Our Lives march, organized by these amazing students who want to end gun violence, want to stop AR-15s and AK-47s from being used to hunt down kids in, in their classrooms and the hallways of their schools. We come back from that march, Henry, my eight-year-old's on my shoulders, and there are guys with AR-15s and AK-47s waiting at the end of the march, really there to intimidate us and um, to, to show us um, you know, defiantly, um, you're, you're going to try to do something about these guns. Here are these guns. And how do you feel with these guns in your face? And Henry, who like every kid, um, is, is just honest and has a BS detector that's as finely tuned, as acute as, as anything on this planet is like, dad, what? I don't, I don't get it. We were just marching, talking about guns. And, and then here are these guys with these guns that are the kind of guns we're talking about. We don't want in our schools, in our lives. And I said, oh, don't worry about that. It, these are very, you know, nice people, and they're just trying to make a point. And, you know, under Texas law, they can do it, but don't, don't worry about it. Don't give, them, don't give them any attention. And what I should have said is, no, that, that, you're right, Henry. That is absolutely wrong. And um, there, there's nothing funny about that. And, and you're right to point this out and be disturbed by it. And, and you should be, should be angry and should make you a little bit afraid. Um, and that's a very natural reaction. You know, at, at my town halls across Texas, because people would show up with guns, with AR-15s, to, to protest my presence, I'd very often give them the microphone. And I think I probably took some foolish pride in doing that. Like, look, I, I could get along with anyone. I bring everyone in the conversation. And I think to some degree that's important, but I think not acknowledging that, that having those weapons um, in, in our communities, in public life, at a town hall meeting, when you're trying to engage people democratically, but by not calling out that, that blaring, obscene injustice and saying, look, we gotta get those weapons off of the streets. And in fact, we're, we're gonna have to buy them back. You, you will no longer be able to possess these. Um, you know, I think that was, that was a mistake on, on, on my part, something um, I couldn't see past. And, and, and frankly, something that, that um, I think I could only truly see with eyes wide open after El Paso. Uh, I, I, think, I think it was just too convenient uh, not to have to, to see that or acknowledge that. I feel like the, the, the two kinds of responses that that could 
bring out is uh, from people who don't agree with you and who are some of those who might have shown up with the guns to say, well, what are you saying? You're not going to reach out and talk to us anymore? And yes. then the other response to it could be people who have criticized you from now, uh, who, who were more in favor of gun control measures, including some of the ones that you are in favor of, who say like, Oh, it's very nice, Beto. It took a shooting in yep. your hometown to wake you up to this. Like, nice uh, show up late for the party. So, yeah. right? Like, absolutely. Yeah. What do you? How do you balance those two? What do you yeah. say to the, <laughs> each of those? Yeah, just just be honest. You know, I mean, I, I, I of course, want to continue to bring people in, but but I don't, I, I don't want to be blind to the fact that showing up at a a public event in a state that ranks 50th in voter turnout because white men with guns have used them to terrorize and suppress voter turnout. That just saying like, shit, everything's hunky-dory. You showed up, give you the mic and everything's fine. You show up, I'll give you the mic, I'll, I'll engage with you. But then I need to point out how wrong it is that you showed up with a fucking gun at, at a town hall and you made people there feel afraid. And, and I may not uh, as, uh, you know, I, can't, I may not as a white man uh, I may not as someone who, if there's police protection, it's focused on me, but, but other people will feel intimidated. Kids will, will be a little bit more scared because they, they know that, that that is wrong. So I think that's what I'm trying to say in that respect. And just to maybe prove that point, um, after releasing our gun violence plan, um, I went to a, 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 a gun show in Arkansas to listen to people and, and to make very clear to them what my plan is, but then to listen to them and, and get their, their feedback on that. And then to this other criticism, I, I mean, I think it's, it's, there's, uh, it's a valid point. It's a legitimate point. It's true. Um, sometimes it, it takes experiences in our lives to further open our eyes or to, to help us to understand something that, that we couldn't fully comprehend or move us past a point that we were complacent in or satisfied in. I mean, you know, I traveled the 254 counties of Texas talking about ending the sales of weapons of war. I can't tell you how many people, um, senators and members of Congress in DC who wanted me to do very well, who said I was very stupid for saying that. They're like, look, talk about universal background checks. That's a, that's a pretty bold move in Texas. Do not, you do not need to, to, to talk about AR-15s and AK-47s. It's just, it's a loser politically. I don't think we can get it passed uh, in the Senate anyhow. So, so why would you put yourself out there? You're, you're just gonna alienate people. Um, but, you know, I, I um, and I knew that it was a good step. I knew it was a step in the right direction. Uh, I think El Paso forced me to acknowledge that that step was, was insufficient. Um, and so, you know, may, maybe, um, you know, maybe that's unique to me. Maybe it's true as humans that we're, we're not immune from how events in our lives and in our communities and uh, events that affect the people we love change our, our perspective or um, the distance we're willing to travel uh, politically or through a policy in, in order to, to do the right thing. But I could not help but be changed I don't know. I don't know that that uh, I'm alone in that. But yeah, I, I think it's a totally legitimate point. 
you have this, and you, we, we've talked about this before, you, long before the shooting, uh, your, part of your idea of yourself as a candidate has been being the sort of vessel for hearing all these stories and bringing them forward, and, and that you, when, when we hear more of the stories and it changes how we think of things, you've been talking about that more since the shooting. Yeah. How does that become an actual governing philosophy or right like what what does that mean if you were president are you just going to spend all the time talking about all these unknown stories that we didn't have it's it's uh it's it's funny because um and this is true for anybody running for any office school board trustee to president you never lack for advice you know beto i think if you just did it this way or I think what people really want to hear is the following. And, and one piece of consistent advice that I've received from people on my team, people who support me, people who love me, people who want me to do better is, look, um, I think you, what you really need is just a, a, a really concise stump speech. This is what you're gonna do on healthcare. This is what you're gonna do on climate. This is what you're gonna do on immigration. This is how we make sure the economy works for everyone. This is how you fix our democracy so that every voice is heard. You do that, you take some questions, and then you just move on. It's gotta be consistent, you gotta say the same things, and you gotta touch upon every single one of those issues. You know, a, a, uh, a policy platform to allow America to achieve its, its true greatness. And all of those things are important, and I talk about all of those things in, in any town hall that I do, but it, it feels like acting it, it feels like I'm the anchor reading the script uh, it, it it feels like I'm not making the connection to the other human beings who are in the room when I just repeat the same thing and I've, I've tried doing that um, but when you say like after the, the second shooting in Texas in August mass shooting the one last weekend your response was this is fucked up right yeah. and I think everybody agrees on some level this is fucked up we shouldn't have this going on but it, then it becomes like okay so like you've said that how are you going to unfuck it right yeah. what yeah. like ha, why is it you why yeah. is it you right so so um this is the the labored point i was trying to get to um to to the constructive critics uh advice that, that i'd be more concise and have a quick stump and a quick answer to your questions when when i talk with people and bring other people's stories into it, um, share with them Jessica and Memo's story in, in El Paso, or the mother of the 15-year-old girl who bled to death in, in front of her in the shooting in Odessa not even uh, a, a week ago. You, you see yourself in that other person. It, it, it becomes personal for you. I think you're, you're moved beyond the policy prescription or the abstraction of numbers or um, the volume or the scale. And, and I think, to answer your question, that, that is the first necessary step to be able to then move on the policy prescription that you presented. For me, universal background checks, red flag laws, and in the sale of weapons of war, mandatory licensing, gun registry, and buybacks of AK-47s and AR-15s, millions of them on our street. But, but if, I, if I don't connect you to the problem, if, if I don't go to Conway, Arkansas and the gun show and then talk about going to Conway, Arkansas and the gun show to demonstrate that, that everyone can be part of the solution or at a minimum I'm going to listen 
to, to everyone, then I think it becomes much harder to, to get that done. I think of uh, LBJ talking about the, the classroom in Catula, Texas, where he first taught school. And he said, you know, those Mexican-American kids that I taught just were, were never going to have the chance that, that I had. It had been institutionalized through the racism that was in our laws in this country. It, that, that was a very personal story that you could tell drove him. And he shared that personal story with the rest of the country and brought the, the country in. Um, those young people in the Children's Crusade in Birmingham in 1963 getting arrested en masse, uh, shot down by fire hoses that stripped the clothes off their backs, that, that we connected with that. That, that. Those were human beings. I saw those images. It, it, it meant something to me. So um, I, I just think there's a real power in that 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 is the precedent it's not the end it's the precedent to being able to to get the policy done to to bring other people in to to form the consensus and to inspire i hope the urgency to compel those members of congress to to do the right thing so i'm going to ask you a political question asking presidential candidates any politician about sort of seeing where they are in the race is tricky. But I was asking someone uh, yesterday about what I should talk to you about, and someone said to me, look, I think that is a tough question here, which is uh, when you look back in the arc of this campaign, it started off, you were uh, huge. Uh, everybody, me included, was trying to figure out what you were going to do, whether you are going to run. We ran to Iowa when you got to Iowa. Uh, but it, things have fallen off politically since then, the poll numbers, uh, the fundraising numbers. So make the argument to someone that your campaign, it's still, we're five months from the Iowa caucuses and six months from Super Tuesday, that your campaign is still a viable one and this can catch and turn around in the way that you're seeing things now. Yeah. I'm happy to have this as, as a conversation because... I just don't understand the question. Uh, you know, you've been with us, you've watched me at, at town halls. Um, you know that we've qualified not just for the next debate in September, but the debate after that in October. We're many months away from the first caucus or, or primary. And so I, I think the, the question implies that polls should determine the viability of a candidate. And if you don't score well in those polls, well then why not drop out? And I just, I think if, if I were to rely on that factor to determine my candidacy, if, if anyone were, um, then what's, what's the point of voting at all or appealing to voters in the first place? Just, just allow the polls and the pollsters, the pundits and the coverage to determine your prospects and your fate as as a candidate. Um, I don't think they're unimportant, obviously. Um, they have an influencing and compounding uh, effect, uh, and I'm, I'm well aware of that. Um, but, you know, as long as there's still the ability to connect with people, uh, to listen to them, to learn from them, to reflect their stories and their experiences, to share with them my vision for this country and what I think we can achieve um, then I'm going to be in this race. I'm going to be excited to be in, in this race. And, and I do think that unique among the candidates to, to be from the place that this president directs uh, stop. so much fear 
and hatred and racism. U.S.-Mexico border, in particular, the community of El Paso. And if I, if I didn't believe that, if, if I didn't think it was so important, there's no way I'd be on this bus right now. I'd be, I'd be back in El Paso to, to watch Ulysses uh, cross-country meet this evening uh, and to, um, you know, to be at home and to sleep in my own bed and, and to cheer from the sidelines or do whatever I could in, in whatever capacity as a private citizen to, to help out. But I'm, I'm in this for this country. I'm in this because I believe I have something unique to offer. Um, and, and I'm in this because I know that this is a defining moment for all of us. And, and I want to be defined by what I've been able to contribute, the leadership that I want to be able to provide for America. And I'm just grateful that I have the chance to do it. So we're two hours into this bus ride. Does it still seem like a good idea? Yeah, this <laughs> seems like a good idea. Yeah, I'm pulling into New Haven here. <laughs> totally, totally. We're going to be able to take a little, little bit of a break. Um, looks like some new passengers are going to get on. Um, but so far, so good. Right. Yeah. Better work. Thanks for being here on Radio Atlantic. Thank you. All right. That'll do it for this week of Radio Atlantic. Thanks to Kevin Townsend for producing and editing this episode, and to Catherine Wells, the executive producer for Atlantic Podcasts. Our theme music is the Battle Hymn of the Republic, as interpreted by John Baptiste. You can find show notes and past episodes at theatlantic.com slash radio. If you like the show, rate and review us in Apple Podcasts and subscribe in your preferred podcast app. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week. Thank you.